0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm. Episode 8 of the podcast features interviews with two experts on climate-related risks faced by indigenous communities in Alaska. In this episode, we'll learn about the array of challenges impacting Native Alaskans, the efforts of state and federal government authorities to reduce vulnerabilities, and how environmental change is affecting food security and indigenous ways of life across Alaska. Later in the program, we'll hear from Nicole Massardi, an associate professor at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, who studies long-term changes in coastal ecosystems, including the interaction of humans and marine mammals. But first up is Joel Clement, senior fellow at the Arctic Initiative at Harvard's Belfer Center and former director of the Department of Interior's policy office, where he co-chaired the 2016 Arctic Resilience Report. Here's Joel speaking about his work during the Obama administration to help Alaskan indigenous communities build resilience and adapt to climate change.
1: Yeah, I ran the policy office at the Interior Department at U.S. federal government. And in that capacity, I was also the top climate policy advisor in the agency. As the federal trustee for American Indians and Alaska Natives, the well-being of tribes and villages should be paramount within the mission of the agency. So I applied our climate change adaptation work and policy work in that region. One of the things that needs to happen, for example, up there, are, there are several villages that are in extremely vulnerable locations. It's not by any fault of their own. They're located in some of the most vulnerable places on Earth. You know, these narrow spits of land are islands that are essentially barrier islands, but they've been locked in place by permafrost for Mm -hmm. millennia. And the sea ice has always protected them from the storms that come in off the Bering or Chukchi Seas in the fall, and that's no longer the case. So the permafrost is melting, the, the, the sea ice doesn't set up until the middle of winter now, which is well past the storm season.
0: Every year, or is that certain
1: years? This last winter, it didn't set up until well into December. It actually, uh, one of the shocks this year to climate scientists in the Arctic, in the U.S. Arctic, is the ice hasn't stopped melting. Usually by now, it started to expand again, We're well past that mid-October time frame when you start to see that. That's when the ice builds. The minimum is usually well before this, but it's still melting in some places. So the trend is clearly toward less and less sea ice in November and December. So they're no longer buffered from the storms and the seas by that sea ice. So they're melting. Permafrost is vulnerable. They're losing meters of land a year to these storms. So they need to be, frankly, there's not much more you can do in place. They need to be relocated. We need to move them out of harm's way. Do they so, accept
0: this fate or are they?
1: Obviously, culturally, this is a huge, tragic development, right? To uproot your culture and move it. But several villages have voted uh, to move. Mm-hmm. They, they see the writing on the wall, they know that it's just a matter of time before there could be lives in jeopardy. They need to get out of the way.
0: And the federal government assists in this process? So
1: the hope would be that the federal government would enable that process, as would the state government. But the state of Alaska right now, of course, is really struggling because of the price of oil, which their economy depends on, ironically. So they don't have the budget, the federal government should step up. And during the Obama administration, there was a big effort to at least coordinate the federal agencies in Washington to start pushing money up toward the region and get these people out of harm's way. And that was my role in Washington, was to coordinate that effort amongst the federal family to see how we could do that. And I was, soon after the Trump administration came in, I was reassigned to an accounting job and removed from my position. And they never filled in behind that. They never initiated this work. They've completely neglected the threat of climate change to the Alaska Natives. For a couple of reasons, right? They're, they're not only trying to deny the inevitabilities of climate change, but they also have not been friendly to tribal sovereignty and Alaska Native issues in general. So the only help that the Alaska Natives are getting in terms of government is Congress pushed some money up there because Lisa Murkowski, the senior senator in Alaska, understands it's, it's a big part of her constituency. These folks need help. That's the only help they're getting. It's not enough uh, to get them out of harm's way.
0: How do you go about finding a new place to relocate them to? It's is hard, it, like, yeah. It cooperative across between the tribes and, and the government?
1: It, yeah, at best, uh, it is. And, you know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of federal lands up there. The U.S., I think about 60 or over 60% of the U.S. Arctic is federal mm-hmm. land. I mean, there's some state lands and there's some tribal corporations lands and some villages, but for the most part, it's federal land. Parks, Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service. So there have been examples so far, and we'll see more hopefully in the future, of federal agencies doing land swaps with these villages to enable a relocation. I don't think any agency would stand in the way of that. It's really just the White House needs to make them, give direction for that to happen. So the land could be acquired. It's more the cost of then building infrastructure in that new location. And in the Arctic, it's just really expensive.
0: Do you look for particular characteristics in these new locations, like higher ground or anything? Rock.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, the permafrost is melting. So you don't want to relocate to an area that may be melting less quickly, but it's still likely to melt because we're seeing an accelerating trend. So you really need to find solid substrate upon which to build. And of course, that makes it more complicated to do water and sewer, but it has to happen. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are some constraints, but primarily the constraint is money, you know, because you need to then build a road for them to get from one village to the next. You need to establish that water and sewer and energy electricity and so on. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot.
0: Now are these villages where they previously living in a more traditional way of life that are now in this relocation process? Are they being put into a different trajectory in terms of how their communities will evolve over time?
1: Well, you know, that already happened when when the reason they're in these locations permanently in the first place is because when the state of Alaska said, hey, you need to go to school, kids need to go to school, they built schools. So you had these communities that were often moving from one location to another based on season. So when it was time, when it was whaling time, they would relocate to camps along the water but when they built the schools, they built them wherever they could get barges in, which was usually right there on the barrier islands. So they ended up having to move there permanently. So that change in trajectory took place way back then. This was many decades ago. So there was already an unfortunate constraint on their cultural resilience, but at least they were close to the resource for the most part, because in the winter the sea ice is their highway, In the summer there's hunting and gathering, and of course the whaling in between. So it, they were very adaptable, and have always been very adaptable. That's how these cultures have survived in the Arctic all these years. The problem now is that could happen once again. You're uproot the culture, locate it in one place permanently, Uh, it's a constraint, but they've learned to adapt to that constraint. My guess is then they would find a way to once again have seasonal camps by the sea in order to do those things that they would normally do as a subsistence culture.
0: You mentioned cultural resilience, is that one of several ways you apply the resilience concept to cultural? Oftentimes it's ecologically understood. Yeah. Is there other ways to think of resilience and, and how do you actually implement it?
1: Yeah, that's the, you know, we think of resilience in terms of social ecological systems. So because, particularly in places like the Arctic where the social systems and cultural systems are so closely linked with the ecosystems, you really can't manage one or the other. You really just have to think of these as an as interoperable system. So the way to then implement resilience is to look across all of the drivers of change, understand if possible, where the tipping points are. Look for look for those thresholds beyond which you would have a really hard time bouncing back and establish some parameters and, and identify some actions that will allow a community to kind of weather those changes, right? Whether it's the loss of sea ice or the effect of warming permafrost on species migration. Right. So you just can't separate the ecosystem from, especially when they have a subsistence culture, because the, you know the migration. Patterns and seasonal patterns are exactly how they identify hunting and forage opportunities. You know, this, these are incredibly adaptable cultures, but they've never seen this rate of change, which is saying something. They've been around for thousands of years, but I mean, no humans have seen this rate of change in the Arctic. I, mean, I think it, we can go back to whatever wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago and see this rapid change, this rate of change, which is really striking. So, their resilience, cultural, geographic all of the above have been constrained by non-indigenous actors like governments for so long now that it's making it harder for them to bounce back in situations like this so we are absolutely obligated to assist allow them to do whatever it is they want to do, wherever they want to do it.
0: How is that determined? Is there some sort of consulting process between government officials and local Mm
1: -hmm. leaders? Yeah, one of the things we funded from the Interior Department was a process called these village planning groups. And the village planning groups consisted of all the different stakeholders, whether it's federal and state agencies or local communities, local leadership, tribal leadership, and businesses. But the decision-making had to take place at the community level. So You can't come in, the federal government can't come in and say, okay, we know what you guys need to do, we'll help you do it. Rather, it needs to be, okay, what do you want to do? Do you want to relocate? Would you rather defend in place, as some villages have chosen to do? Because we're talking about over 30 villages that are threatened. We focused on four during the Obama administration because they were so close to risk, or their risk was so high. But there are many of them. So they're all choosing different approaches, and that's where you have to start. Sometimes that slows things down, but it's essential. There's such a dark history of imposing big changes on communities looks like that we need to do better.
0: Is there any international um, level processes uh, at work as well, or is it just the federal government, to a certain extent the state government, in these communities, or is the Arctic Council involved, or the the ICC, or anything else?
1: Yeah, the Arctic Council has been uh, a big supporter of implementing resilience. They sponsored the initial Arctic Resilience Report that Sweden initiated back in 2011. That report was delivered, and it was an assessment, basically, of resilience qualities in the Arctic, and it had a lot of case studies in it. Here are some things that were done, you know, what succeeded what failed, uh, what can we learn from those things and then the Arctic Council approved in the 2017 ministerial the Arctic Resilience Action Framework which allowed for implementation allowed for it was just a framework upon which you could hang all these resilience activities around the circumpolar Arctic and learn from them and identify what's missing so it's not just lessons learned but it's gaps where are we blowing it and the priorities of the framework there were four general priorities right there was the information and knowledge how can we do better with that the second was building adaptive capacity in the communities. And then there was a governance section, one of the laws and policies we need to help advance resilience. And then the most difficult one is the finance chapter. How are we gonna move resources into the region? Enough resources to get people out of harm's way, to provide for resilience, to improve economies. You know, how can we help lift communities and cultures in the North? So the international community has been very helpful in that regard. And of course, the cool thing about the Arctic Council is there are representatives from these indigenous groups that sit on the Arctic Council, right? So you have, in the case of our Arctic, we have Aleut representation, we have Inuit representation through the Inuit Circumpolar Council. The Gwich'in and the Athabascan are all participating in this process. So in Alaska, we have four of the six permanent participant groups, that are called, engaged. The others around the world or around the Circumpolar Arctic are doing the same. So the Sami reindeer herders are a big part of that process as well.
0: How transferable is this knowledge that you learn in one place to other regions? You
1: know, it it depends on the scale, but the activity, certainly resilience actions, things that build resilience, need to be tailored to the particular interactions that are important. And Sami reindeer herders are going to encounter different constraints than the villages I mentioned on the coast of Alaska that are more threatened by seas and erosion. But the things that we most need to do on the resilience front uh, in terms of building capacity and moving resources into the area and improving fate control and, and the empowerment of local communities are very similar, even though the circumstances are very different. So Mm -hmm. there's still a lot we can learn around the circumpolar Arctic from one another's actions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, some opportunities there.
0: And how about other emerging um, challenges or changes such as uh, economic development here in Greenland, mining and in other places, resource extraction? How does this interact with building resilience or the loss of resilience?
1: Yeah, so we've seen examples of very non-resilient, very rigid economic structures Mm -hmm. in the Arctic. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think sort of the classic one is oil and gas. boom and bust cycle of oil and gas industry, right? And generally, there's usually a boom. There's a lot of building that takes place. A lot of people then come to work in that industry. There's a significant amount of ecosystem damage. And then when the resource dries up, that's all gone, not just the infrastructure, but the jobs. And of course, the impacts are left behind. So that's an example of sort of a non-resilient economic development process in the Arctic. And it's irresistible to a lot of communities. But I think generally, most of the Arctic voices are very cautious about that kind of development. Same thing with tourism. I think, you know, a lot of disadvantaged communities are not crazy about the idea of tourism because it's not really, those aren't really living wage kind of jobs. So building resilient economic systems in these villages and in these communities is essential. So it's, it's one of the things you just have to focus on because it's only so long where we can move resources into the region without the region itself pushing them out. Now, we'll see, you know, mining is, of course, a big interest in Greenland, but it's going to have an impact on what is considered a very pristine and beautiful natural environment, which may have some attractions to, you know, tourism and so on. So they'll need to balance those things. And you know, it's it's ultimately probably going to come down to that. I think the economics of it will determine that. But there's a lot you can do to improve the social impacts of tourism and make it a little more culturally beneficial and avoid the permanent impacts of those extractive industries. Because that's kind of a one-way street once you really tear up a place. It takes a long, long time, especially in the Arctic, for it to bounce back.
0: So what sort of time frames do you look at? Are you looking at adaptation and resilience building over the course of three, five years, 10, 20, 50 years is there any sort of time horizon
1: well it's it's context specific so if you you may remember the calving glacier that led to the tsunami in greenland and it led to loss of life right so there's an emergency preparedness aspect that needs to happen right away so that's part of resilience right is just being resilient to these sudden shocks whether it's tsunami whether it's a big storm coming in off the bering sea that could overwash one of the communities in arctic alaska So those things we need to address right now. And really, we're running late. We really need to get on the ball with those. But in terms of the economic development and treating the Arctic as a future economic driver, because people are going to be moving further north over time as climate warms. We're going to see more vegetation, for example, moving north. We're already seeing trees and shrubs heading further north, so there'll be different ways of living. We need to anticipate those. So in that sense, we're looking decades into the future. In some cases, you know, 100 years into the future. You know, you get beyond that and it gets very difficult to get your head around it. But it depends on the question being asked, the management question or the cultural question being asked as to what your time frame is.
0: Just one final question. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, what sort of experts are involved in these processes? Uh, policy experts, natural scientists, geographers? Or what kind of knowledge do you drop on? Indigenous knowledge, of course, as mm. well?
1: Yeah, all the above, actually. Mm. You know, one, one of the most difficult and challenging questions has been what p- some people mm. call integrating Western knowledge with Indigenous knowledge. And what we've moved to is is not necessarily integrating them right but just using them both to make decisions and making sure that indigenous knowledge holders maintain that knowledge and don't have to give it up for nothing right so really there's a lot of nuance around how you acquire the information you need but you cannot draw a line Uh, you know we've even been getting information and knowledge from pacific island cultures right so we can go pretty far afield for expertise on resilience of threatened cultures. So there are certainly policy people, certainly scientists, certainly indigenous knowledge holders, but there are people around the world uh, who can provide information on this. So, and at all levels, right? Because there, there are community level responses, resilience actions, they would never have thought to describe as resilience actions. But it may be how they treat waste or how they address a change in fish species composition that they're working with. But that's exactly the kind of thing we need to know about. So at all scales and in all geographies, we can find resources for advancing resilience in the arctic
0: well yeah. thank you very much joel for sitting yeah. down and talking to us here at the polar geopolitics podcast
1: it's my pleasure thanks for having me
0: that was joel clement who i spoke with at the 2018 arctic circle assembly in iceland next up is nicole massardi who's the research director at the water and environmental research center at the university of alaska fairbanks nicole investigates marine mammal species such as walrus that many indigenous communities depend upon for their food security
2: Most of the research that I do is actually looking at the long-term sustainability of the subsistence resources in these Arctic communities. So I, for example, have a project looking at the health of walrus populations over the last two or 3,000 years, and we look at that through paleoecological methods, which are mostly isogeochem techniques. But the importance of that is to look at how walruses have adapted in the past to time when there's been more or less ice and where they've moved to, what they've eaten, their general health in those times. And so the communities are obviously very interested in this because the communities that we're working within for that project, their subsistence focus is on walruses. So for example, we spend a lot of time on St. Lawrence Island and those are the two communities, Gamble and Shavunga that harvest the most number of walruses each year. And when they cannot reach those walruses and they don't have those in their freezer... Um, it's a big problem for the communities because people go hungry and their towns and villages have actually asked for help in the past when they haven't been able to get out to these walruses because they have no food. So the way that I look at it is if we can learn from the past what was happening with those walruses, where they were it went, whether or not their populations dropped, that we can help manage for the future of these communities that rely so much on them. Um, At the moment, it's appearing that walruses are actually fairly adept and that they have weathered these times of less ice in the past. But the problem that these communities are having right now is that the ice has changed so much they cannot reach the walruses during the hunting season. Even though the walruses are out there, the communities are still falling short of what they need.
0: How have these communities adapted to this to these changing conditions in the past and how are they doing it now? You mentioned they have to ask for help. Do they ask for the state government?
2: Or? They, yeah, the state government has actually declared emergency um, and oddly enough, in years past, some of the fishery communities, um, some of the processing plants have wound up shipping tons of fish up there for them to eat for the winter, for which they were quite grateful. But it's still not their subsistence food because that's not what St. Lawrence ever really has as it had as a basis for their food in the past. So yeah, it goes up to the state level.
0: In general, you know, you see a change over time in the basis of the diets of these communities?
2: It's actually... I think probably quite complicated. And there are people who know a lot more about this than I do. But shipping food, Western food out there is very, very expensive. So these are the communities that you sometimes read about in the newspapers where a gallon of milk is $10 and fresh food is impossible to get. So they have a local store. There's not always a lot of things on the shelf. And most of the products are dried goods or canned goods. And they can definitely purchase these things. But there's not a lot of money in these communities. There's not a lot of work to do. So I think that it's in part economic, but it is also in large part cultural. I mean, this is their cultural identity. This is the place that they live. And walruses are a huge part of that. The kids are going out hunting. When you have hunter meetings, there's high school kids who are let out of classes to come sit in on the meetings. So it's definitely an important part of their culture.
0: How much variation is there in terms of basis of their food security from the north and across the the, the various parts of of Alaska? And has, has that been changing over time because of changing environmental conditions?
2: It's changed quite a bit over time. Part of it is changing environmental conditions and part of it is change brought on by an influx of the Western world, if you would like to say. So the communities, for example, Barrow and its surrounding communities are still whaling. As you move farther down south, all of this will change. So there are communities that are beluga whalers instead, and then communities that hunt mostly ice seals, communities that focus on walruses. And as you get much farther south, those communities seem now to focus mostly on fisheries, subsistence fishing, and they are also quite a large part of the commercial fishery as well. So there are many towns along the Alaska Peninsula and into the Aleutian Islands that participate quite actively in commercial fishing of salmon, commercial fishing of cod and even crab fisheries. I think that it's just sort of depended in part on the history, in part on the communities themselves and what's happened since there's been an influx of the Western world.
0: That was Dr. Nicole Massardi, who I sat down with at the recent Humanities for the Environment Circumpolar Observatory meeting in Sigtuna, Sweden. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.